0: Hi, I'm Jason Nias, along with Natalie Wires from Digital River, an e-commerce and payments company dedicated to helping brands go global and grow their revenue. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e-commerce experiences of our time. Listen on to hear from e-commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started and lessons they've learned that have gotten them where they are today and what they believe is the future of online shopping Hey, this is Jason Ives with Digital River. When it comes to CPG, there are a few brands that have the name recognition of Colgate-Palmolive, which makes their global head of digital commerce, Sarabi Pocreal, a top influencer in her industry. With a background in digital transformation at companies like Johnson & Johnson, as well as her work at brands like Estee Lauder and Kimberly-Clark, Sarabi is a sought after evangelist for e-commerce as well as digital marketing. Welcome, Sarabi.
1: Hey Jason, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's an honor to be speaking with you today. You know, you've you've worked at such incredible companies um, with a huge amount of, you know, shelf space at some of the world's largest retailers. I would love for you to introduce us to yourself and a little bit more about your background.
1: Sure, thank you so much, Jason, again. So I head global digital commerce at Colgate-Palmolive today. I started my career back in India. Right out of business school, I joined Procter and Gamble in during the times when p and and Gillette was being integrated. So I had a fantastic stint with them throughout Southeast Asia, working out of Singapore, Philippines, India, and so on. And then the consulting bug bit me. Uh, one of my ex Procter uh, mentors joined uh, Cognizant. Typically an IT company, but they were setting up cognizant business consulting that time. And he brought me to initiate the CPG and retail practice. I spent about 12 years there. And I would say that's where I learned whatever I know on all things digital marketing and e-commerce with a variety of Fortune Hundred clients, you know, the ones you took names of, right, from Estelle Order, Kimberly Clark record bank user pepsico and others Uh, moved over to johnson and johnson back on the client side to execute some of what i had learned on the consulting business and led global e-commerce for them sitting in the marketing organization and very recently in january this year uh, colgate palmolive uh, is setting up a large digital program and i joined the cdo's office to head e-commerce for colgate
0: you know it's interesting uh the industry CPG is is changing dramatically as it relates to e-commerce. I'd love, given all your experience, I'd love to to hear how big CPG brands think about e-commerce and that direct consumer relationship. Um, Do they think about it as continuing to sell digitally through big established retail relationships, or do they think about it in the kind of intimate one-to-one relationships with consumers?
1: Sure. The example that comes to my mind, Jason, is we always remember our Kotler's principle on marketing, the five P's and all of the good stuff we grew up studying uh, from schools. And they always said it's all about location, location, location. The only difference is in the current world, it's not about location, 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 because not just physically, virtually, the consumer is engaging with the brands on every channel and format possible, right from TikTok to Instagram to Facebook, to bestbuy.com, to Amazon, and your direct-to-consumer site. And especially in a post-cookie world that we keep speaking and hearing so much about the uh, apocalypse coming, brands are really looking to make more closer relationships uh, with the consumers directly. Now, it goes without saying that retailers have been those intermediaries get all the information from the consumers and not always share that with the brands because that's proprietary. That's, that's why they are the middle vendor middleman and they would not really want to give it away. But I think it's at a time where brands, especially iconic brands who have a great influence and top of mind recall in our consumers, are trying to go and reach out to that consumer directly and have that one-on-one relationship.
0: Now in our, in our pre-discussion, you, you talked a little bit about uh, being a bit of an evangelist. Uh, And it wasn't that long ago that being an e-commerce evangelist was really convincing people inside of your organization to embrace digital. And you have an acronym for companies that drag their feet, SUMO. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what that is, what it stands for, and what you mean by it?
1: Um, So not the Japanese wrestling people. That's one of the names I know SUMOs are also. I I just say it. As straight up missing out, like you have formal fear of missing out. I think post COVID, a lot of brands are in the, you know, mindset of fear of miss- missing out, but they also ought to be aware and cognizant of where are we straight up missing out. To state it simply, I'll just say, what got us here is not what will get us there right that's exactly what i mean when i say sumo Uh, whatever worked all the inertia and all the things that worked so far in a pre-covid era is not what's going to work to excel in digital commerce today uh, we can no longer think of sales and marketing as discrete parallel path and the twain shall never meet kind of scenarios and you know that's all the evangelism i do uh, within the company and outside and i see so many uh, cpg companies doubling on, down on those kind of areas
0: i like it so talk a little bit more about uh the end of channel conflict it, you know it wasn't it wasn't long ago that uh you couldn't convince a cpg brand to have any sort of e-commerce at all on their site is channel conflict gone or has it changed shapes in in, in brands that you've seen in other cpg brands
1: I think channel conflict is a very internal view to companies, right? When the consumer decides to buy, if I want to buy a tennis racket and tennis balls for my son, I'm not thinking channel conflict. I'm just thinking the cheapest, more efficient uh, route in the most frictionless way, where can I get the product? So, you know, if I have to take the analogy of our, the example of our traditional funnel, right? We say awareness, consideration, uh, potential conversion and loyalty. Traditionally, we thought that the upper funnel is all marketing and the lower funnel is all all sales. But the consumer in in a very digitally uh, invasive way has decided the funnel doesn't exist anymore. I can browse Instagram, look across a great sunscreen product, become aware and choose to buy it in that same micro moment of engagement. So unless my sales and marketing teams are tied at the hip, and are cognizant of this fact that the funnel is truly collapsing and you just want to catch the consumer wherever they are in their journey, uh, will not be able to truly you know, uh, move forward in the most uh, you know, commendable way. So I think channel conflict is sort of uh, you know, in, in the passé, having said that, when brands go to retailers, there is always that conversation about if you are trying to reach directly to the consumer, what am I getting and, and back and forth? So I, I think it's all about the conversation of value exchange. When we are doing retailer JBPs as, you know, CPGs and brands, what is the give and the get? And that's where, you know, you can minimize conversations on channel conflict, but truly talk of value.
0: Well, so I love the analogy. Uh, the customers don't care about channel conflict. Those are constructs set up by... The people who are in the relationship with the retailers, the retailers themselves, but it's not putting the customer in the center. I, I love that analogy. Relative to that same point, kind of pulling that thread a little bit more. How do you think about your media mix? Like, how do you in, how do you incent the right behaviors to, to drive the right behaviors?
1: You know, similar to the conversation we were just having, right in the funnel aspect, typically you would say marketing budget is designed x million dollars to just go after reach and awareness and impressions a lot of brands have started to realize that i can push my reach and awareness media still to reach the same objectives but how about i put a call to action right there So it serves multiple purposes. So I I think forward leaning brands and more digitally aware brands are trying to make the maximum of their money. I call it ROI, not just return on investment, but also ROE, return on effort. Now that you're making that amazing creative campaign already, how can you go more cross channel and full funnel Right. Full funnel media optimization, full funnel content optimization versus trying to keep the funnel discrete and say, I'm going to optimize for awareness separately and optimize for conversion separately.
0: I can imagine, well, so so part of part of the reason digital transformation for brands is so hard is because it literally changes all the way you operate your business from the way you drive incentives, um, the, the things that you have people work on, but also KPIs. Can you speak a little bit about? you know, in a world where brands embrace digital transformation and the old ways of measurements are gone, how do you set KPIs so people know what's most important to drive behavior?
1: That, that's such a good question, Jason, because end of the day, human beings are creatures of habit. So the as long as we have the end goal and the North Star of what the outcome is, the KPIs will roll from there. In my view, typically brands have goals like, I want to increase my sales, I want to gain market share, and I want to generate long-term customer lifetime value from that consumer. These are the two or three big macro goals that most, if not all, all brands will have in in our industry, right? So how do you go about making sure that the cross-functional teams, be it sales or marketing or customer development or anybody else, have these as their audacious or hairy or not-star kind of goals irrespective of which function they come from. So how do you truly start behaving in a functionless leadership role? And then you can go and do a double click and say, sales guys, these are your specific e-commerce KPIs, you know, ABC within the sales share and customer lifetime value. But those two or three are shared goals or uh, you know commonly accountable goals by multiple functions.
0: I love it. Is functionless leadership a, a term you guys use?
1: we we use that sometimes and i have seen that you know across our partner ecosystem as well right because a, a lot of digital transformation like you said comes and stalls itself when functional silos start start showcasing themselves
0: yes well i man i love what you just said i mean to really achieve groundbreaking new things you have to break free from the traditional silos inside of a business and yeah. so you know your your point around someone measuring brand as an influence, and then someone else measuring click through rate, and then someone else measuring sales at a certain retailer or direct means you're actually all individually doing something that's not necessarily connected. So you have to get beyond that to truly uh, transform.
1: Yeah, and I'll add an analogy that comes to my mind very recently. I was speaking to someone, you know, from my past couple of past couple of jobs, and they said we still speak on the swim lanes, right? This team's swim lane is this. Now, if you think about it, the very construct of swim lanes is equal to silos, right? Swim lanes should not exist in a functionless leadership. So if we are propagating functionless leadership and saying swim lanes at the same time, that, that's that's not uh, good to push push the agenda. You know, we speak of agile and fail fast and all of that stuff. But if you if you keep the vernacular of swim lane, it's not relevant right so and i know all of us grew up talking in corporate a lot on swim lanes and staying you know true to your function and all of that some of it is relevant but i think some of it needs truly to be disrupted
0: yeah that's I mean, we could talk a lot about this and, and the way that the way that uh, you've seen organizations have success is through really good goal setting really good kpis making mm-hmm. sure the thing that matters most is achieved not the who does it or what organization it's in
1: Correct. And shared accountability, right? There, there has to be, you know, you know. this is very typical and this is nothing new. I'm telling you what gets measured gets delivered. This is one of the oldest things that was true maybe 10, 20, 50 years back. It's true even now. So measurable, tangible goals is important, but shared accountability of those is also important. At the same time, shared accountability doesn't make it so ambiguous that you don't know who is doing what, right? There has to be a level two to define which group is contributing in which discrete way, but everybody should be incentivized towards the same, you know, big macro goals.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, global. You know, uh, anytime you're talking about any of the companies in your, in your history, these are all very well-known brands without borders. Pretty much every country you go to around the world, you're going to see products from one of your companies that you've worked at. Mm-hmm. How does... How do, you, how do brands in, this, in the CPG category think about the role of their website globally for basically showcasing what its products are and romancing them and creating relationships with consumers, either directly or through retailers? So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying, how do brands like this think about global?
1: I think it varies a lot depending on categories, also, right? I have worked with companies who were in beauty products and companies who were in over-the-counter, you know, uh, medicines kind of products. So it varies because sometimes if you're buying an OTC medicine, you may want your brand website to be very clear about, say, just dosage instruction. I have, you know, 2 a.m. in the night. I'm looking to give my child fever reducer. I might go to your website, but the first thing I want to actually find out is how much ML for depending on the age of my child versus somebody else, you know, if you're looking for a foundation, you go to the brand website to figure out what is fit for my skin, right? Do you have a map to figure out the right, you know, lotion, moisturizer, sunscreen, you know, foundation for my skin type, they could be guided selling. And, and finally, you know, brands are also looking at it as a selling opportunity. So you may or may not use the brand website as a direct-to-consumer site, but you may put plugins like where to buy to make sure if somebody landed on my site they, and they are inspired by what they see about my product, they have the option to go buy my product in a most seamless and frictionless kind of way. So I, I think it's, it varies by category and what brands want to do if they want to go beyond awareness and education about the products, You know, using that as a myth buster. But if they also want to use that as a selling opportunity, but in a delicate way, not in an explicit, you know, uh, buy now, you know, 10 second home shopping network kind of way.
0: Uh, Changing over a little bit to direct to consumer disruptors, you know, the CPG category is a obviously very large, tons of different products and services underneath that. How do... Big brands, and I'm kind of going back to some of your previous experience at Cognizance as well. Mm-hmm. How do they think about like the Harry's and the dollar shave clubs and the you name it, uh, D to C first brands? And how do, how do big companies think about protecting that turf?
1: I think about five, seven years back, you know, going back to my consulting days, that's when we started seeing, especially beauty companies wanting to go direct to consumer. One of the reasons was to build consumer relationships, but another reason was profitability, right? You know, cutting out the middleman to make uh, make the maximum ROI. So I saw a lot of beauty companies. One of the clients I used to consult was, uh, with was Cody. Philosophy, which is a major beauty brand. And we started their philosophy.com direct-to-consumer site. And that that was a huge, huge experience. Similar with other beauty players like A1, right? Uh, The the multi-level selling kind of products. Estee Lauder Online has been a champion in direct-to-consumer for several years. And they have a variety of brands doing that really, really well. So I think that relationship is is maturing. Beauty is still at the tip of the spear, I would say, in terms of direct-to-consumer in the CPG industry overall. Uh, It's also a function of what brands perceive consumers might buy direct-to-consumer. So there's a lot of notion, you know, preconceived notion, like who would have thought people want to buy a mattress online? And then Casper happens. Who would have thought people want to buy a high-touch product like prescription glasses online? And now you have Warby Parker coming up with an IPO in the next couple of weeks or months and and with physical stores. So I I think there's a lot of disruption happening in terms of categories that were traditionally not thought of to be in a direct-to-consumer kind of category. And now, now that is happening.
0: Yeah, well I love the examples you gave. Um what what those brands did was they changed the experience on interacting with those brands. You know, Warby Parker sends you five pair and you send the ones you don't want back. And uh, you know, but but so the question then would become for for, for you in your career now and, and before, how do you think about some of these brands that have been around a very long time and selling direct? Is it all about Changing the experience—is it about unique bundles? Is it about subscriptions? Like, what would what would make people want to engage with buying aspirin as opposed to uh, getting it on Amazon or other places? Like, can you can you shed some light as to some of the thinking that goes into that process?
1: I think you sort of answered the question, Jason, when you say, "Is it bundling? Is it experience? Is it frictionless? Is it multi-touchpoint? All of those and more, right?" Is the brand able to give a truly unique experience to the consumer when they are coming to the direct-to-consumer site, which they would not have gotten otherwise? Be it a unique assortment, be it a unique bundle, a unique price point. Maybe it's a loyalty point, right? It, it varies so much uh, by category. One example that comes to my mind right now, and I don't know if you would classify it as direct-to-consumer or not, it potentially is, is SHEIN, S-H-E-I-N, the China apparel a company that is taking the entire western world by storm us at the very least so they they are the biggest in fast fashion and this very recently surpassed forever 21 and h&m in fast fashion and going direct to the consumer in the fastest more frictionless way so that's a great example uh, i believe from the apparel industry in terms of finding the right value proposition looking for the greenfield area and then going in and executing it really really well
0: Okay, well, let's shift gears a little bit now to, um, you know, your LinkedIn profile. And, and I noticed there that you do a lot of work with kids. Uh, you've been a first Lego League coach and a coach of Girls Who Code. Uh, just a couple volunteer stints. Why is, why is that important to you?
1: One, because I have kids of my own. So, so it's a very selfish uh, human behavior to invest in things that will benefit your own kids. Having said that, Uh, When my son was in kindergarten, he was getting, because my husband is a techie, he enjoys robotics and uh, coding and all of that. He was exposed to that through our family. And I'm an engineer by trade. Uh, before I got into marketing. So I have a little bit of interest in that we would go through that we would go to his classroom and bring the concepts to, uh, to his classmates and many girls was there. And I was amazed by how many kindergartners would come up and say, Oh, it's robotics. Oh, it's math. Oh, it's science. It's not for me. I'm a girl, you know, this is not for girls, this is for boys. And that really made me stop and think Like, why should that perception be in young girls? And we talk so much about girls not being in STEM, not enough women in corporate. We talk of the glass ceiling and so on. I said, if, if I'm able to contribute in any way, shape or format to try to fix the problem down at the root cause level, where as kids grow up and get exposure to science and technology and math, girls feel that this is something we can do, right? With no disrespect to everything else that girls do in terms of what is considered feminine or gender appropriate, these are skills that are relevant for, you know, every child growing up. So I personally felt very invested in that. And me and my husband, we started a couple of Lego leagues and robotics teams from within the school. And and it grew up, sadly, through COVID. uh, We were not able to meet a lot of teams, but I'm very happy that we are able to put a little bit of our time in that and now i have a five year old myself a daughter uh, much later since i started the program and i'm hoping she's able to uh, you know pick some interest in this area
0: and obviously you've got an amazing background worked with some of the, the biggest names in cpg and other categories who influences you
1: i'm i'm very um, influencible let me say that so i i don't want to take one or two names but i passionately follow uh, not just people, but also brands and thought leaders, not just in my sector of digital marketing and e-commerce, but overall in business, right? Some of the recent ones that I'll take names of, and the list is, you know, needless to say, and the list is ever evolving and keeps changing. Mark Lore was a huge influence back in the days. He started Jet.com and Walmart, and now he's on to new adventures. Simon Sinek is a great, uh, you know, thought leader on all things of how to do business. Hubert Jolly, who's the ex CEO of Best Buy, he just, you know, wrote some books about, you know, doing business, the heart of business, uh, bringing the right, you know, transformational leadership to companies. Uh, there is Ajay Banga, who's ex Mastercard, uh, who's a huge champion on diversity that's fit for purpose. So I follow a lot of people, you know, I'm just giving you a few names that come to my mind right now. Uh, but I, I like to see where is good happening, what inspires me, what might inspire my children if I were to talk at home, right? That, that That's a big motivator for us uh, to keep keep in mind, not just work.
0: I like two of the ones you picked are, have Minnesota ties, Mark Lohr, which is where I'm from. Mark Warner uh-huh. is buying the Timberwolves, uh, the former jet founder and with uh Alex aron And uh-huh. then uh Hubert Jolet. Did I say it right? Was the former CEO of Best Buy. Um, great. So obviously uh you're an e-commerce shopper as well with a family. I'm sure you do plenty of shopping online. Uh tell us about a commerce transaction that you've done recently that you really enjoy. Tell us uh who that brand is and what you liked about it.
1: So this will be a different kind of e-commerce you know, example. This happened this Friday. So I was picking up my son after a sports activity and he said, I want to have Panera Bread Bread Bowl for dinner and i said okay i can call them i was driving and they can keep it ready we don't have the time we have to get back home you know how uber mom's schedules are in the evening i i've i jokingly say my evening job is and I'm, I'm just an uber driver for my own family so uh, i said take this phone type panera princeton and see what comes in and tell me and i'll guide you so he has my phone and he's speaking he says it, sh- it says go pick up or delivery i said put pick up and he says i see the five lists. I and he would have made no more than three clicks and the order was in. My card was already saved on Google Pay and he was given a text to say, pick up the order in seven minutes. And I was amazed, I did not realize he did not have to go to the Panera Bread website. All of this happened through a Google search transaction and he got a notification. We landed there, the brown bag was ready with my name and we were in and out in under five minutes.
0: That is fantastic. Can you imagine how stressful that would have been a few years ago to try and attempt that. (laughs) That is a a great example. Um, So one of the things that's really boomed over the pandemic is podcasts. There Mm -hmm. are thousands and thousands. I feel like everyone has a podcast now. Would you tell us what is your favorite podcast and why um, as it relates to anything really, but I was thinking specifically as it relates to kind of industry and e-commerce?
1: Sure. So I have become a major podcast fan through through COVID. Um, you know, this is one thing that you can do in an engaging way without a screen in front of you. You don't need to have Zoom fatigue to listen to podcasts and you can walk, run your dog, do your dishes and, you know, get a lot of learning ongoing. I, I almost say podcasts are the new business books, right? Uh, these days, it's almost like Blinkist, you know, that app that summarizes business books for you, but you still have to read it. I think that's a fantastic app, but, you know, podcasts are amazing too. Some of the ones that I listen to are to listen to fairly religiously on the business or general economy side is a ted business hour mckinsey strategist uh, motley money a motley fool money and robin hood snacks daily uh you know these are a couple of uh, just to give me a sense of what's happening some of these are very funny the way they deliver the you know insights are pretty engaging on the e-commerce and digital side i i follow the jason and scott show the C- those I am I have been you know following them for long before they became hugely popular and now I think Jason also has a YouTube channel where he speaks to a couple of episodes I really enjoy that uh, I really like Brave Commerce which is newish which you know got, gained popularity through COVID times and Who, they bring on, a lot of
0: who's that one Brave Commerce
1: Brave Commerce so Sarah Sarah Hofstadter from Profitero and Rachel Tipograph from McMac. Uh, two digital leaders in the industry, they started that and I've been on their podcast. So shameless plug for them, but it, it's generally a good podcast where they bring digital and commerce leaders and they try to keep it concise. I like the fact that, you know, podcasts which are in 20, 25 minutes, right? You go boom, 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 go to the specifics, have some learnings and, and keep the riffraff engaging. So those are the couple of ones that come to my mind right now.
0: I love that. Well, we'll put that one in the show notes so people can uh, follow this conversation over there uh, as well. Uh, If people want to get in touch with you, what do you recommend? Uh, A lot of people usually say LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn
1: is great. I wish I were more active on Twitter. I'm more a consumer than a provider on on Twitter uh, right now, but LinkedIn is ideal.
0: Fantastic. So, And if folks want to look you up, obviously, uh, Sarabi Pocreal, the name will be in the uh, the podcast. We'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing some insights from the CPG industry. Uh, Very much appreciate it.
1: Of course. Thank you so much, Jason. Pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Commerce Connect podcast, brought to you by Digital River and edited at Matriarch Digital Media in Minneapolis, Minnesota. To learn more, head to DigitalRiver.com.